poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned in to The Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, with you for the next hour with poetry and music. But first, let's ease in with some music.
that was Blackmore's Night with The Times They Are A-Changing. Today we will start with the Scottish poet Hugh McDermott, who lived between 1892 and 1978. He was instrumental in creating a Scottish version of modernism and was a leading light in the Scottish Renaissance of the 20th century. His poetry demonstrated the potential of the Scottish language as a means of modern literary expression. He was an important translator of Scottish Gaelic and edited several literary magazines and anthologies of Scottish poetry. This piece is called Prose. I was born in the closing decade of last century in the little Scottish border town of Langham in Dumfrieshire. That means that I was born within a few miles of the English border. And that is why, for some reason, I inherited the frontier spirit. Even when I was a boy, although speaking Scots was in decline, the majority of people felt that there was something wrong about speaking English. It was an affectation. They called it speaking fine. So I had that orientation from the start. Later on, the First World War, I served with the medical corps in Salonica, Italy, and France. And when I was demobilized, finally, I had occasion to ask myself what Scotland had gained for all the lives it had lost in that war. And I discovered that I knew precious little about Scotland and that the information was not available. A great leeway had been incurred in Scottish national documentation. I also found that we knew, people of my generation, knew little or nothing about Scottish literature because it was not taught in our schools. Our native languages we weren't allowed to use in the classrooms, although we reverted to them in the streets. But in language and in literature and even in history, a virtual monopoly was given in our schools to the English counterparts of what should have been our national subjects. And I came to the conclusion that that was all wrong. Now, to have come to that conclusion might have been purely a personal matter, but I no sooner came to it than I found to my surprise that very many young Scots all over Scotland had come to the same conclusion and that the time was ripe for a Scottish national movement in culture, if in nothing else. And we started that in 1920. And since then, in all three languages, in Scots, in Scottish Gaelic, and in English, we've had one of the richest periods of poetic production in the whole course of Scottish history. But even so, very early in the development of that literary movement, which owed a very great deal, of course, to the giants of the Irish literary movement, 
Very soon we realized that it couldn't reach its full fruition unless it was accompanied by a corresponding political development. That took longer to effect. But I don't think any student of the matter, viewing the enormous escalation of the Scottish national movement in the last few years, will deny that the instigation of that movement lay in the work of a few writers like myself. There's a general disbelief today in the practical potency of poetry, but I personally have always believed that Arthur Oceanesi was right when he said that poets were the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. Not idle dreamers, but practical men engaged with the very roots of the being of the country that they belong to, and that has been abundantly exemplified in my own case. Also, in Scotland, the very roots of our being lie in the Gallic past. Even in Burns's time, Gaelic was still spoken as far south as my native place. It is no longer so spoken. And quite recently, a reviewer of a book of mine challenged my right to call myself a Celt. What was wrong with that reviewer was that he leapt to what seemed obvious but didn't know enough about Scotland because although right down to the margin of the English border, many of the names are good Gallic clan names, the reason for that is that at the time of the dispersal of the clans, after the 1745 rising, elements of many of the greatest clans settled in the borders. Graham's, Murray's, that's my own middle name, Murray, Graham's, Murray's, many others. And they're just as Celtic as those who live in the highlands of Scotland now. We're a unified nation and we're moving again to a practical demonstration of our national unity through the instrumentality of the Scottish National Party today. It's still in its infancy. It has a long way to go. It must get very much more radical but it's moving in that direction. And if, as a Celt, I am challenged at all because of my border origin, it is well to remember that one must see things with knowledge in proper perspective. Because after all, the borderland was the ballad land, those wonderful ballads so utterly different from their English counterparts where out of what was virtually the journalese of the time, verse after verse suddenly soared from its commonplace basis into magnificent poetry. The borderland is the ballad land, and all the greatest work in Scottish literature has always come from the borders. The debatable land, which is being newly debated again today. You've only got to think of the names Burns, Scott, Stevenson, Carlyle. There's a quality in the borders that brings out the very heart of song.
in Scotsman whom nature has endowed with a sensitiveness to be conscious of it and to express it. since 2007 across the community radio network. We just heard Damon by Celtic Women and before that Scottish poet Hugh McDermott reading his piece Prose. Another poet who used poetry to express his political inclinations was John Keith MacDougall. MacDougall, who lived between 1867 and 1957, was an Australian politician, farmer, poet and labour activist from country Victoria. This next piece is called Surfs. Surfs by J.K. McDougall. 
Bow down before your kings and clowns, their toads and flunkies be. Give honour to their stars and crowns, and scoff at liberty. Slaves of the masters of your fate, accept their sordid creed. Be beasts of burden for the state, and live in dirt and need. Give ear to mammon's priests and drones, their yellow god adore. Bleed for the sake of alien thrones. Be fools forevermore. For him who yet a scepter wields, in harness legion stalk, die on a hundred battlefields to feed the wolf and hawk. For kings and popes who die like you and disappear in dust, the massacres of old renew and call your murders just. Before your conscience put the creed of Wesley, Rome, or Knox, sink lower than a jungle breed, consort with snake and fox. Base brothers of Iscariot, betray and take your price. Tis easier to laze and plot than serve and sacrifice. Be in the future as you were through all the ages past, Live in your hovels, famine bare and paupers, die at last. Exist in terror of your priests, for masters sweat and slave, provide for drones their gems and feasts, and cringe to rogue and knave. Let politicians market you as hucksters trade their wares, Toil as you are directed to, to fatten them and theirs. Dwell crowded with your hungry brats, in fetid slum and sty, be drudges for the overfats, but never question why. Go humbly to your common lair where vice and hunger flit, since providence has put you there and fools approve of it. Your masters made your gods for you, their hirelings wrote your creed, in yokes that you were broken to, your sons shall sweat and bleed. You read the truth that rebels pen, you hear the tongue that's wise, but like the fire and grit of men, from serfs you cannot rise. a word, just a single word, to start it off, if it goes unheard, it takes a heart, beating strong and true, it takes a voice, not to sing along, it takes a choice, when it all feels wrong. When the night is dark, will you hold on? Now I'm gonna rise up, gonna take to the sky, love. I see the road I can take, or the world I can make, if only I speak up. 
Cling to hope when it all feels lost. Carry on, though there be a cost. When the water is high, fight your way across. with Rise Up and before that a poem by J.K. McDougall called Surfs read by Gypsy Jack From the outside influence of tyranny to the inside space of the tormented mind and heart this next poem, My Own Heart is by Gerard Manley Hopkins an English poet who lived between 1844 and 1889 his experimental explorations in prosody and use of imagery established him as a daring innovator in a period of largely traditional verse. My own heart let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter, kind, charitable. Not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind, tormenting it. I cast for comfort I can no more get by groping round my comfortless than blind eyes in their dark can day or thirst can find thirst all in all in all a world of wet. Soul, self, come poor Jack self. I do advise you jaded let be. Call off thoughts a while elsewhere. Leave comfort root room. Let joy sighs at God knows when to God knows what. Who smiles, not rung, see you. Unforeseen times, rather, as skies between pie mountains. Lights a lovely mile.
Chickens with Inside. And before that, Cyril Cusack, reading a poem by English poet Jared Manley Hopkins called My Own Heart. South African poet Tatumkulu Africa, who lived between 1920 and 2002, cites Jared Manley Hopkins as a major source of inspiration. The following poem by Tatumkula Africa, Nothing's Changed, was written in 1990 and is an autobiographical account of his return to District 6 in Cape Town, Africa's home community before it was emptied. He remarks that even after the fall of apartheid, there is still division between white and non-white people in South Africa. District 6 is the name of a former inner-city residential area in Cape Town, South Africa. Over 60,000 of its inhabitants were forcibly removed during the 1970s by the apartheid regime. With an Arab father and a Turkish mother, Tatumkulu Africa could have been classified as a white, but refused as a matter of principle. He stood up against the apartheid and the destruction of District 6. In 1987, he was arrested for terrorism and banned from speaking or writing in public for five years, although he continued writing. He was imprisoned for 11 years in the same prison as Nelson Mandela. Small round hard stones click under my heels. Seeding grasses thrust bearded seeds into trouser cuffs. Cans trodden on crunch in tall, purple flowering, amiable weeds. District 6. No board says it is, but my feet know, and my hands, and the skin about my bones, and the soft labouring of my lungs, and the hot, white, inwards-turning anger of my eyes. Brashwood glass, name flaring like a flag, it squats in the grass and weeds. Incipient Port Jackson trees, new upmarket haute cuisine, guard at the gatepost, whites only in. No sign says it is but we know where we belong. I press my nose to the clear panes. Know before I see them there will be crushed ice-white glass, linen falls, the single rose. Down the road, working man's cafe sells bunny chows. Take it with you. Eat it at the plastic table's top. Wipe your fingers on your jeans. Spit the little on the floor. It's in the bone. I beck from the glass. Boy again leaving small mean O of small mean mouth. Hands burn for a stone, a bomb, to shiver down the glass. Nothing's changed. It's a lonely road for the tired men be home in spring I can wait till then I 
heard you're on the big train And all years too shall pass This loneliness won't last for long I wasn't there to take his place I was 10,000 miles away So when you hear my voice When you say my name May it never give you pain I don't want to go But it's time to leave To be on my mind My destiny And I won't fight in vain I love you just the same All the pictures you're looking fine And there was a time when I stood in line For love, for love, for love But I let you go, oh, I let you go And he fell apart with his broken heart And his blood, his blood, his blood Oh, it drains from you are listening to the Bohemian Beat, brought to you via the Community Radio Network. That was the Lumineers with Gale Song from the soundtrack to the sci-fi trilogy The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. And before that, Nothing's Changed by Tatumkulu Africa, who was one of South Africa's foremost poets, although he was well into his 70s before his work achieved recognition. Divisions between districts and their inhabitants are explored in Susan Collins' trilogy, The Hunger Games, where the wealthy capital of Panem dominates 12 poor districts spread across the country. Many years before the start of the games, the districts rebelled against the capital but were defeated. As punishment, the capital requires the districts to send a young male and a female selected by lottery to fight in an annual televised death match. The government holds the brutal competition to both entertain the residents of the capital and to demonstrate the capital's power over the districts. In the arena, the seeds of the rebellion are sown by music. When the child tribute Rue from District 11 teaches Katniss four notes to a song, this is considered a defiant act because the song now has a new purpose communication between the two districts. Defiant 
since the capital works hard to keep the districts ignorant of one another. Katniss sings a lullaby to the dying child. The musical act creates a vehicle not only of ideas but of emotion, and emotions like fire are catching. Rue's death and the lullaby's hope for the future inspires Katniss to cover Rue's body in wildflowers, reminiscent of the daisies that guard you from every harm in the lullaby. With this musically inspired act, Katniss shows her love for Rue and her defiance of the capital's attempt to turn the district tributes into mortal enemies. This next piece is an excerpt from Book One of the Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins. Before I go, I scatter a few mint leaves around our old campfire. Since we gathered these some distance away, Rue will understand I've been here, while they'll mean nothing to the careers. In less than an hour, I'm at the place where we agreed to have the third fire, and I know something has gone amiss. The wood has been neatly arranged, expertly interspersed with tinder, but it has never been lit. Rue set up the fire, but never made it back here. Somewhere between the second column of smoke I spied before I blew up the supplies and this point, she ran into trouble. I have to remind myself she's still alive. Or is she? Could the cannon shot announcing her death have come in the wee hours of the morning when even my good ear was too broken to pick it up? Will she appear in the sky tonight? No, I refuse to believe it. There could be a hundred other explanations. She could have lost her way, run into a pack of predators or another tribute like Thresh and had to hide. Whatever happened, I'm almost certain she's stuck out there, somewhere between the second fire and the unlit one at my feet. Something is keeping her up a tree. I think I'll go hunt it down. It's a relief to be doing something after sitting around all afternoon. I creep silently through the shadows, letting them conceal me. But nothing seems suspicious. There's no sign of any kind of struggle, no disruption of the needles on the ground. I've stopped for just a moment when I hear it. I have to cock my head around to the side to be sure. But there it is again. Rue's four-note tune coming out of a Mockingjay's mouth. The one that means she's all right. I grin and move in the direction of the bird. Another, just a short distance ahead, picks up on the handful of notes. Rue has been singing to them, and recently, otherwise they'd have taken up some other song. My eyes lift up into the trees, searching for a sign of her. I swallow and sing softly back, hoping she'll know it's safe to join me. A mockingjay repeats the melody to me. And that's when I hear the scream. It's a child's scream. A young girl's scream. There's no one in the arena capable of making that sound except Rue. And now I'm running, knowing this may be a trap, knowing the three careers may be poised to attack me, but I can't help myself. There's another high-pitched cry. This time my name. Katniss! Katniss! Rue! I shout back, so she knows I'm near. So they know I'm near. And hopefully the girl who has attacked them with trackerjackers and got an eleven they still can't explain will be enough to pull their attention away from her. Rue, I'm coming! When I break into the clearing, she's on the ground, hopelessly entangled in a net. She just has time to reach her hand through the mesh and say my name before the spear enters her body.
The boy from District 1 dies before he can pull out the spear. My arrow drives deeply into the centre of his neck. He falls to his knees and halves the brief remainder of his life by yanking out the arrow and drowning in his own blood. I'm reloaded, shifting my aim from side to side while I shout at Rue, Are there more? Are there more? She has to say no several times before I hear it. Rue has rolled to her side, her body curved in and around the spear. I shove the boy away from her and pull out my knife, freeing her from the net. One look at the wound, and I know it's far beyond my capacity to heal. Beyond anyone's, probably. The spearhead is buried up to the shaft in her stomach. I crouch before her, staring helplessly at the embedded weapon. There's no point in comforting words, in telling her she'll be alright. She's no fool. Her hand reaches out, and I clutch it like a lifeline, as if it's me who's dying instead of Rue. You blow up the food? She whispers. Every last bit, I say. You have to win, she says. I'm going to. Going to win for both of us now, I promise. I hear a cannon and look up. It must be for the boy from District 1. Don't go! Rue tightens her grip on my hand. Course not. Staying right here, I say. I move in closer to her, pulling her head onto my lap. I gently brush the dark, thick hair back behind her ear. Sing, she says, but I barely catch the word. Sing, I think. Sing what? I do know a few songs. Believe it or not, there was once music in my house, too. Music I helped make. My father pulled me in with that remarkable voice, but I haven't sung much since he died. Except when Prim is very sick. Then I sing her the same song she liked as a baby. Sing. My throat is tight with tears. Hoarse from smoke and fatigue. But if this is Prim's, I mean, Rue's last request, I have to at least try. The song that comes to me is a simple lullaby. One we sing fretful, hungry babies to sleep with. It's old. Very old, I think made up long ago in our hills, what my music teacher calls a mountain air. But the words are easy and soothing, promising tomorrow will be more hopeful than this awful piece of time we call today. I give a small cough, swallow hard, and begin. Deep in the meadow, under the willow, a bed of grass, a soft green pillow Lay down your head And close your sleepy eyes And when again they open The sun will rise Here it's safe Here it's warm Here the daisies Guard you from every harm Here your dreams are sweet and tomorrow brings them true here is the place where i love you rue's eyes have fluttered shut her chest moves but only slightly my throat releases the tears and they slide down my cheeks but i have to finish the song for her deep in the meadow 
hidden far away, a cloak of leaves, a moonbeam ray. Forget your woes and let your troubles lay. And when again it's morning, they'll wash away. Hear it say, hear it swarm. The daisies guard you from every harm. The final lines are barely audible. Here your dreams are sweet, and tomorrow brings them true. Here is the place where I love you. Everything's still and quiet. Then, almost eerily, the Mockingjays take up my song. For a moment, I sit there, watching my tears drip down on her face. Ruse cannon fires. I lean forward and press my lips against her temple. Slowly, as if not to wake her, I lay her head back on the ground and release her hand.
This is a bohemian beat, and we just heard Deep in the Meadow by Taliesin Orchestra and Jesse Daniels, and before that, Mullumbimby High School student Lucy, reading from Susan Collins' The Hunger Games Trilogy. French symbolist poet Arthur Rimbaud was prompted to write this next poem, The Sleeper in the Valley, when he came across a soldier during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 while he had run away from home, and he was about 16 at the time. A green hole where the river sings, silver tatters tangling in the grass, sun shining down from a proud mountain, a little valley bubbling with light, a young soldier sleeps, lips apart, head bare, neck bathing in the cool blue watercress, reclined in the grass beneath the clouds, pale in his green bed showered with light. He sleeps with his feet in the gladiolas, smiling like a sick child he naps. Nature, cradle him in warmth, he's cold. Sweet scents don't tickle his nose, he sleeps in the sun. A hand on his motionless chest, two red holes on his right side. Bohemian Beat, and that was Maxim reading a poem by Arthur Rambo called The Sleeper in the Valley. This is all we've got time for today on the Bohemian Beat. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and for more information, go to thebohemianbeat.com and drop me a line. Let me know about the poets you love. What's your favourite poem, and how did it inspire you? I love hearing stories about poetry. And make sure you tune in again next week for more poetry and music. We will end with a track from The Furies called The Green Fields of France. Thank you for joining me on the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready. Do, young Willie McBride Do you mind if I sit here Down by your graveside And rest for a while Need the warm summer sun I've been walking all day And I'm nearly done I see by your gravestone You are only nineteen when you joined the Great Fallen in 1916 I hope you died well and I hope you died clean Our young Willie McBride was it slow and obscene Did they beat the drums slowly, did they play the five lowly, did they sound 
after that march As they lowered you down And did the band play the last post and chorus Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest And some faithful heart is your memory enshrined Although you died back in 1916 In that faithful heart are you forever 19 Or are you a stranger without even a name And close them forever behind the glass frame in an old photograph torn battered and stained and faded to yellow in the brown leather frame did he beat the drum slowly did he play the fine flowly did I sound the death march as they lowered you down did the band play the last post and chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? The sun, now it shines on the green fields of France. There's a warm summer breeze, it makes the red poppies dance. And look how the sun shines from under the clouds There's no gas, no barbed wire There's no gunfiring now But here in this graveyard It's still no man's land The countless white crosses Stand mute in the sand To man's blind indifference to his fellow man To a whole generation That were butchered and damned Did he beat the drums slowly? Did he play the fife slowly? Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes Play the flowers of the forest. I young Willie McBride, I can't help wonder why. Do those that lie here know why did they die? And did they believe when they answered the call? Did they really believe? That this war would end war Well, the sorrow, the suffering The glory, the pain The killing and dying Were all done in vain For young Willie McBride It all happened again And again and again and again and again did they beat the drum slowly? Did they play the fife slowly? Did they sound the death march 
I said, love, would you doubt There the band played the last post and chorus Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest Did they beat the drums slowly Did they play the fire slowly Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down Did the band play the last post in chorus And did the pipes play the flowers of the fall Thank you.